If you go in, in if you go into any city that has sports arenas or concert venues or even sometimes just important buildings, these buildings uh, will often have someone's name on them. So in London, we have the O2 Arena, named after the, the phone company, and Emirates Stadium, named after the airline, and, and these names get plastered on buildings, not only because they're important names, but because these people sponsor the buildings. So, so they are financially liable for it, meaning they look after all of its tangible needs. So, so they get to have their name emblazoned across it. And this idea of, of sponsorship stands even today behind how we know our most noteworthy structures. And that notion of building sponsorship was familiar even in the ancient world, particularly in reference to temples, which should perhaps give us pause about our sponsored cultural landmarks. Uh, Patrons sponsored temples and employed an architect, so, so sort of the senior architect, to oversee the other workers in their labor. And the architect was responsible to ensure that workers performed their duties according to the patron's guidelines, all of them knowing that upon completion, the patron would inspect the temple and distribute rewards or penalties according to how the worker fulfilled the specific task given to them. And in 1 Corinthians 3, 10-17, Paul drew from, from the two sources of, of Greek architectural practices and the Old Testament motif of the temple as God's presence to assert God's sovereignty in the church. But also but also Paul's own authority as the architect under God who is the divine patron. And so to review, let's catch us up as we work through 1 Corinthians. Uh, first four chapters address divisions in the congregation where, where various members had aligned themselves with the teacher whom they thought most prestigious. So in chapter 3, Paul used four images to depict the need for maturity in how the Corinthians thought about the church in its ministry and its relationship to God. So in verses 1 to 9, which we considered last time we were in this book, Paul used the adoption and agriculture images to show that the Corinthians needed to mature in understanding that ministers are simply tools that God uses to create and mature believers. And now in verses 10 to 17, Paul used the images of architecture and assembly to show the Corinthians need to remember Christ is the central focus of the church and ministers are simply workers to meant to be faithful to adorn that foundation, which is Christ. So, so the main point is that we must meet with God through Christ in the church. We must meet with God through Christ in the church. And we're going to think about this in three points. Founding, 
furthering and fellowshipping. So, founding. This passage has three main aspects. So, so this point is going gonna, is gonna to focus on the first aspect of this text in verses 10 and 11. So those two verses are about Paul's pivotal role in the church. Let's read them. Uh, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul here wanted to establish his crucial role as an apostle. So he had thus far been really gentle, essentially, with the Corinthians by making sure that they knew that they should not specifically align themselves with a faction even about him or any of the other ministers. And now in these verses here, Paul pointed out that even though he was indeed lowly in preaching, uh, as he preached a forthright gospel without tricks or flash, he still was an apostle with special authority in God's church. And so as noted in the ancient world, uh, the known practice for temple construction was that a patron would set the plans. He, he would design the sort of temple he wanted, and he hired an architect as the chief supervisor over all the workers on this project. And the same principle, for example, governs a lot of our restaurants in London. If you think about like Jamie Oliver and Gordon Ramsay, who have tons of places to eat just in our city, but neither of them do the actual cooking every night in any of them. They they establish the menu they want, what this restaurant is going to be, but they hire a head chef to make sure that these restaurants have that determined food served and that the wait staff delivers that specific product. And so too, in this case, a patron in ancient Greece would outline exactly the temple that he wanted, and the architect executed those plans and and made sure that the workers built the structure according to the, the patron's specifications. None other, just the patron's specifications. And in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 8, Paul established that God is the one who sovereignly brings about all the growth in the church, which is the divine garden, as we read about even in Amos 4. But then in verse 9, Paul directly linked the, the metaphors of the garden and the temple. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. And his point was that every minister belongs equally to God. It's not that, so this verse is not about how ministers work alongside God as if we're God's fellow workers working with God, uh, but that every minister is an equal worker because they all belong to God. And then the church is God's field and his building, meaning God is the patron. 
Just as in Eden, the divine garden was also God's dwelling temple, but in this case, in 1 Corinthians 3, the garden is the church itself. Then, as we turn into verse 10, Paul noted that God had graciously called him to the task of laying the foundation. He he planted the divine garden, and he did the work of founding. So these initial tasks, planting the garden and founding the divine temple. Everyone else watered, but he planted. Everyone else puts up walls, but he laid the foundation. And here's what's interesting. So I've made a big deal about this architect thing, and you're kind of like, where did you get that? The ESV calls Paul a skilled master builder, but the Greek is sophos architectone, the wise architect. He explicitly drew on the cultural notion of an architect as managing the building work, but used the biblical theme of the temple as God's dwelling, which is the church in the New Covenant. And the, the application here, so why is this a big deal? The application is that the church's foundation is the apostolic teaching about Christ. And that is significant because the Roman church claims that apostolic succession is the continuity of the papacy. Which is rubbish. Eastern Orthodoxy claims that apostolic succession is the unchanged liturgy. Confessional Protestantism says with the Apostle Paul that that preaching Christ according to the Scripture is the foundation of the church, which is why we hold fast to our confessional documents. The apostolic succession is preaching the truth we discover in Scripture. The founding, the founding is establishing apostolic doctrine about Christ himself. That brings us to our second point, furthering. So we looked at Paul's unique authority and how that today points to the foundation of the church in apostolic doctrine. This point looks at Paul's teaching about growing or furthering the church. Verses 12 to 15 are about the responsibility that every minister has. So let's read those. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it, the day, will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So, this is really important, okay? You have to understand and see, it's explicit, so it's not difficult, people misunderstand this passage, Crucially, this passage is about a, per, is, is, is about ministry and not about a person's personal works, uh, and salvation. Okay, do you see that? It's about works that we do for ministry, not about being saved. This passage 
uh, cannot then support the notion of final justification or even final salvation on the basis of works, as some have thought. Uh, The concluding thought in verse 15 says a person's work may be destroyed, but that person is undoubtedly saved. You see that? Okay, so this this passage then, that, that is important, not just in itself, but to show us that this passage is about the responsibility to build the church with the best possible materials. Not anything will do. It's about faithful ministry. Paul oversaw workers for God's temple and he, he made sure that they didn't use subpar materials. Because when, when Christ turn, returns, the day of the Lord is going to bring fire. And ministry performed with gold, silver, and precious stones, things that don't burn, right, will endure into the new creation. And, and on the other history, done with hay and straw or wood, will be revealed as deficient. The judgment then here is about quality of ministry. Everyone's work will be shown for what it is. And so, right, that raises the issue of how we do church. I try to throw out relevant phrases from time to time. Uh, But what we see here is, in fact, that Paul was not pragmatic about ministry. Which may fly in the face of so many things we hear today. He said that ministry has to be done according to the specifications set by the divine patron who owns his church. I mean, right, it, it, the, the issue here is it, it would be really easy to obtain hay and straw and just get the job done. But that job would not be done right. Specifically, it would not be done the way that the patron wanted. And so too, when it comes to furthering the church, God actually does not cherish pragmatism. He, he wants what is best. And that entails two th- at least two things for us, but we're going to think about two things. So, so first, in light of this, we can't be doctrinal minimalists. We're supposed to build upon the foundation and are supposed to avoid hay and straw. We are supposed to care about the details, which are the theological decorations of our church. And so when we evaluate ministry, we cannot approve someone just because it's something like, oh, they're good on culture. As if that's enough. Like they've got this one thing where they're good about culture. Unless they're good on the gospel. Unless they are good on the gospel. Avoid their ministry. I'm really serious about that. Because there is all sorts of godlessness in the culture. And I know that we could saddle up with other people under the Christian level who who want a conservative culture. And find a good social commentator. If they're not good on the gospel, it's not proper ministry of the church. And it is bad news. Second, this passage indicates 
that we must keep building, right? It, it is not about one thing. So we should not celebrate, overly so, ministries just because they have the bare minimum truth. We can't say, yeah, they're so great just because they have the utter essentials. That's not what this passage... I realize that there are circumstances around the world where that can be the case, but here in the West, we should prize more than just the bare minimum. So here, you will hear us criticize other theological positions, dispensationalisms, dispensationalism, charismatics, other things. And, and the issue there is, right? well, they all believe the Scripture, and most of them proclaim a, the basic gospel. But they failed to keep building the church with gold and silver. And we want to be like, really, we do. We want. To, it's not just about the one thing. We want to be faithful to Jesus. And so we want to be faithful to all of God's specifications for doctrine and for church practice. And that's why we don't want our services just about to be about our preferences as the ministers or as anyone in the congregation. We want to look like God wants us to look. And so we only do things the scripture commands us to do. We call, yeah, there's a fancy word, right? The regulative principle of worship. Because scripture regulates us. It tells us what to do. And so then we see that along with the Apostle Paul, we also should not prize pragmatism. We only do things that match Scripture. We don't watch movies in the church. We don't use props for our sermons because God says, preach doctrine from the Bible. Ministers that take their own methods and that, that fail to build well, they may be saved. This passage is clear. But their work may be discarded as unfit for Christ's kingdom. The furthering is the methods and theology used to build the church. That brings us to our third point, fellowshipping. So we, we saw Paul's, Paul's unique authority in the foundation of apostolic doctrine and saw the need for ministers to use the best materials, theologically speaking, as we further the church. And now we look at God's ownership of and presence in the church. So let's take a look at verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. Now, here's the thing. I actually spoiled the ending of this passage for you from the beginning by telling you that the church is the temple in Paul's architectural metaphor here. His big payoff after outlining the architectural image, was that the temple that he was assigned to found and others complete is the church itself. The temple is God's people. Now, the scripture tells us throughout uh, that the temple was God's dwelling place. So, for example, Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting... 
And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, the, the pilgrim temple, so to speak. First Kings 8, 10, and 11. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. We ought to remember here from, from last time that we studied this book, that the temple and the garden images often intertwine. And as God planted Eden and put Adam in it, that was also an act of building his temple and setting his priest in the temple. Just as in 1 Corinthians 3, the garden, the garden is the temple under our high priest, Jesus Christ, the second Adam. So, we should also note that this passage, and this is really crucial, this passage is not really about you as an individual, which is where we run, I think, most frequently. That's where we default, is to think, where am I here? Now, it is true, it is 100% true, that God indwells you personally and individually by the Holy Spirit. But here, in this passage... The corporate church is God's temple and the dwelling place of His Spirit. So although you do indeed individually have the Spirit, you cannot have God's Spirit and be His temple individually unless you are joined to His gathered temple. And so this then, we've seen, we've seen the, ag- the adoption, the agriculture, and the architecture metaphor, and this is the final image of assembly, the gathered church is God's dwelling place. And the application here is about the necessity of the church. You cannot, right, you cannot experience and genuinely part, be part of God's people. We cannot encounter God and we cannot claim to belong to Him unless we are joined to a true church. Just as God set the pattern for how to build His church, so too He determined what His church will be like. You don't have the right. I mean, God speaks, and He gives us permission to say certain things. You don't have the right to say that you experience God better on a walk in the woods than in the church. God has not promised to meet you in the woods when you're by yourself. If you have a church service there, then he did. God has put his spirit, made his dwelling in the corporate church. And this means then that our fellowshipping in the church under the ordinary means of grace is God's appointed purpose for our lives. Christians have to be in a church. And the beauty of the church's necessity is actually that it prevents us from drifting from the foundation. If we go it alone, which we could think that we're equipped to do, but we are likely to pursue another foundation, we would lose sight of Christ as the exclusive way to relate to God and try to find satisfaction in private experience which means then 
But to be really clear, this means that if you are not a Christian, any religious experience that you think you have had of encountering the true God is false. You might think you encountered God, or you might think you don't need the church, but that is something you have invented. You have no foundation. But if you are a Christian, or would like to become one, rejoice to gather in this place that stands on the apostolic foundation of Christ himself. We, like Paul, proclaim Christ crucified. The Son of God took human nature and walked this earth to keep the law and earn eternal life for you. He climbed the cross and died so that God would not have to kill you for eternity. And he ascended to heaven to send his spirit to enjoy his church. And we assemble to worship that Christ, and it is by gathering in his church that we know we have the promise of all that Christ did for us. Let's rejoice in that, and let's pray. Father God, we are indeed glad that you have built your church by the work of your Spirit upon the foundation of your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we pray that for this congregation and all congregations in the Free Church of Scotland, that you would keep us firmly planted on our foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ forever until he returns. You would maintain a faithful ministry here in this congregation, across this country, throughout the Free Church. We pray that we would fix our eyes so intensely on what the Lord Jesus would have us do, that we would pursue Him and His will for the church in the Scripture as it is revealed to us in these holy words, and that we would strive evermore for faithfulness in all the things that You have told us to do. We pray that You would grow a church here that is pleasing in your sight. We pray that you would help us indeed to be faithful, that we would be a ministry always built with gold, silver, and precious stones, things that will please you throughout eternity. And namely, that we would be focused in that effort on the gospel and that you would do a mighty work of salvation through what we do here, even our most feeble efforts you would do a great work of salvation here. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.